Guys, I want to say that John Quinn, the guest on the podcast today, now has the record for the most amount of visits to the Relax Running podcast. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but this is his third appearance on the show, and for good reason. I actually I absolutely loved speaking to the guy. He's uh, He's got such a diverse background in sports in general, uh, especially in track and field, distance running, and also the AFL. If you don't know Quinny, he spent 10 years at the Bombers from 1998 to 2008, which we speak about a little bit in the early parts of this podcast. And then he went up to GWS Giants to help out Kevin Cheedy as the Giants uh, launched into the AFL. He's just a wealth of knowledge. He's, he's so filled with practical, simple information, which applies to just a variety of different sports, which you'll see here. We do spend the first 10 or 15 minutes chatting more specifically about AFL and the various forms of training you can do there. Uh, but then we make our way back to track and field. But with this bloke, it's amazing how everything we speak about just relates to movement and running in general. It was a, a really good podcast, a really great episode, and I've uh, linked his website into the show notes so you can get in touch with him if you need to, if you'd like to, or if you've got any injuries that you'd like to speak to someone who's just incredibly switched on about, uh, who's just incredibly switched on. So guys, let me get out of your way and introduce to you the great man, exercise physiologist, John Quinn. Actually, just out of uh, just because I think the listeners would be interested to hear it, I'm sure they've they've heard of the podcast uh, before. But I was saying to you on the phone the other day that I heard uh, your name dropped by Andrew Russell on the Dylan Friends podcast as a as a big influence on his career uh, in his in his early days. Well, yeah. Well, when I got to Essendon, Andrew Russell was the uh, was the up and coming young assistant uh, coach, and look, I couldn't have had a better. Uh, assistant to work with. He was uh, a terrific support and it was a big time of change really for AFL back then. Like we were moving uh, Essendon at that time, we were playing in Bendigo. So Andrew was spending a lot of time with that team doing work there. But no, he was invaluable to me when I first got to uh, Essendon because I think I've told you before, when I started, I didn't even know how to spell AFL. And here I was going to be a conditioning coach for one of the biggest teams in the comp. And you know, Andrew was in many respects a lifeline for me. Yeah, it's so funny. He told that story, actually. I think he explained it was your first meet-up with him and you sat in a cafe and you asked him to draw up the positions on a, on a napkin just so you could understand the, uh, the way the game operated. Yeah, I'm sure people think it's, uh, that I'm just joking when I say I'd never watched a game. And even when I got there, I kept thinking I must watch a game. But it was just such a hectic transition. I, it was out of the blue, me even going to Essendon, and I had to relocate a very young family to... Um, Melbourne from Tasmania and uh, yeah here I was uh, and we were in the, the cafe at Windy Hill and I uh, just said to Andrew look okay let's do I could draw the shape of the cricket ground that was pretty easy so then start, start talking to me about what the positions are and who's in what position so yeah it was no difference to me whether they were a, a rookie on the list or James Heard the captain superstar I had no idea who anyone was so yeah I think he was just astounded and I think he was probably in a great distress um you know when when that day came around like what have we got here but anyway it turned out for the for okay and in many respects i think that uh you know you've heard the saying ignorance is bliss 
And I think in many respects it was. I went into AFL with no preconceived ideas at all and I looked at the game through very open eyes as to what the game required and I had no respect of what had been done before because I didn't know what had been done before. And I looked at the game and just thought, well, from an energy point of view, they do lots of sprints, lots of repeat efforts. They've got to be strong. They've got to be strong overhead. They've got to be able to pick up a ball from the ground. They've got to be able to take impact, change direction, and so on. They've got to be able to do this for two hours, and we've got to be able to do it for, you know, half a year. And so I started structuring a program around it. And, uh, you know, I had many discussions with Sheeds in the early days, you know, why are we doing this? And I just explain it to him and he go, oh, okay, away we go. And uh, one of the funniest stories with Sheeds, I, I do remember when I first got to Essen, we had a couple of uh, boys that had, had uh, a new injury at that time. No one had really heard much of this injury called osteitis pubis. And of course, everyone's probably heard of it now, but uh, this osteitis pubis was just starting to uh, rear its head in, in AFL. And, uh, I had done some work in Tasmania with um, uh, dancers and so on, and they were into Pilates. And Pilates is a, a very common nowadays, again, form of uh, strengthening training. It lengthens muscle. And I, I knew straight away when I was in Tasmania, this is going to be great for my athletes. And I had them doing Pilates down in Hobart for a few years. So when I got to the Bombers, um, I introduced them to Pilates and we got a few reformer tables in and I got an instructor in that was going to be taking them through clinical Pilates and I put it on the schedule. And uh, she just looking at the schedule in our staff meeting and he had his glasses on and he looked at the sheet and he looked up at me and he looked back at the sheet again. And I can't say exactly what he said, but I'm sure you can use your imagination, but it was along the lines of what the hell uh, is Pilates? And... Uh, <laughs> And so Pilates was born in the AFL. So that's how that all came. That was at the end of 98. And, uh, yes, but it's a pretty common place now. But, um, look, I could not have had a better coach uh, in Kevin Sheedy to have uh, brought me in. He brought me in because I was going to be different and I was going to have different ideas. But they were educated ideas and they were ideas that had been tried and tested in the world of international track and field, it wasn't just like, oh, let's roll the dice with something left of centre. The reality was, in my opinion, AFL was about 20 years behind international strength and conditioning. And uh, again, I had no idea. I just said, this is how we go. And uh, Sheeds allowed me as a new head of performance or fitness coach in those days to have my head and go about it. And fortunately, it worked. I mean, we, we missed out on the... Uh, Grand final, we, uh, it still haunts me to this day that we lost the preliminary final by a point to the old arch nemesis down the hill. And, uh, yeah, but we, look, we made uh, we, we got a return the following year and had a record year in the AFL. But, yeah, great times in, in footy. And uh, I'm certainly in Andrew Russell's debt for his patience and guidance in those early days. So he's, um, it's great to see him go on and be one of the most influential people in the industry of uh, not just uh, strength and conditioning in the AFL, but uh, Australia-wide, he's uh, regarded as uh, one of the more astute uh, and insightful conditioning coaches in the country. And, yeah, I'm not really surprised to see him have such success because even in the early days, you could see it.
Yeah, now that's interesting. I'm quite glad, Quinny. I'm a Carlton supporter, and I know he's uh, invested a fair bit of time you, and energy down there. So we need all the help. Did, did you notice I couldn't even make myself mention the name? <laughs> <laughs> I did notice. That's why I had to. Uh, I had to make sure the name got out there just to just to test your response. Um, you've handled yeah. that quite nicely. But I tell you what, yeah, it's uh, we've we've uh, we've certainly paid our paid our debts the last couple of years because it hasn't been too exciting for for either of us really. But you were because uh, you you made the move up with Sheeds. Uh, for the last five years, didn't you? And you I know you're not there anymore, but you were helping out with the Giants um, as they got started? Well, that was a bit of serendipity, really. I, I was with um, uh, the international rules team and we went to Ireland. I'm not sure if this really had a great deal to do with it, but I, I was speaking with the then CEO, Andrew Dimitriou, about the potential of a, a team, this second team in Sydney. And a lot of people just assumed that I must have come from Melbourne if I was involved in the AFL but I grew up in country New South Wales and had played rugby league all my life in fact by the time I was 20 I'd been playing rugby league um, as a as a junior and I played representative football for what's now known as a Canberra Rose and playing things like Jersey Fleet so I wasn't really very good at it I was just fast and I was the winger so they'd throw the ball out and I'd literally just run for my life and because I'd scored they thought it must have been good it was called self-preservation but anyway that's another story but I genuinely liked um, rugby league and I, I even uh, got into refereeing. I refereed uh, junior rugby league in the Canberra district for about three or four years and I coached a junior team and it was actually coaching of the junior team that got me into track and field. Uh, this young boy was actually quite fast and uh, they were off a property and I said to his father, you know, Dean's very fast with running. You, you should get him coached for, for sprinting. And he went, oh, okay, you reckon? I said, yeah, he's very good, mate. He goes, oh, well, when do you want me to bring him in? And uh, so I became a sprints coach. And uh, it was from that young uh, young footballer, about 13 or 14-year-old, uh, that uh, the club, I, I set up a club with another fellow in town and it became a very big club. And I was identified then by Little Athletics in New South Wales as a potential development officer. So I moved to Sydney at the age of 20 and I used to drive about 140,000 kilometres a year, uh, talking to schools all from... Sydney to Broken Hill and everything in between, and uh, working, um, uh, running camps and clinics, seminars, coaching courses and the like. And I did that for a number of years, and I went to university at the same time and got my degree in coaching and uh, physiology. And um, But I got, I got to know... Um, uh, I got to know New South Wales in and out, like every town and community within the place, and so when they were talking about setting up a, an AFL club west of Sydney, it just made sense. Not only did I grow up in the Canberra district in a town of Yass, uh, which is in the Giants' catchment zone, I knew all the towns and everything in, in there. My um, father's family uh, were had been to Blacktown. They were some of the original residents in Blacktown when it used to be farmland, and that's where the initial ground for the Giants was going to be. It was almost going full circle for me to come back to be a founding um, person with the Greater Western Sydney Giants. It was a club that I was almost destined to be involved with. So when the offer came from the AFL to come to uh, GWS, I couldn't even imagine that I'd ever work for any other club at uh, Essendon. I, I loved my time with the Bombers. I was there for a decade and I just absolutely loved it. And I couldn't imagine going to any other club, but if it was going to be one, it was in fact uh, the Giants. And uh, so it was a big move to relocate and come back to Sydney. And uh, um, I, I really enjoyed my time in, uh, in Melbourne. Uh, and much of the disgust of people here, only yesterday, 
I was at a function and sitting next to this guy who was you know, extolling the Sydney and much to his disgust, I said, well, I've lived in Sydney and Melbourne. I'd much prefer to live in Melbourne. It's a, it's a, may not have its beautiful harbour, but uh, the people more than make up for it. But, uh, yeah, he, he didn't want to talk to me much after that. But I think he might have thought I saw him back here. But anyway, look, getting back on track, I, I found um, uh, coming to the Giants was like almost uh, a destiny for me. And it wasn't actually until I accepted the role that I realised that uh, Sheeds was the inaugural coach of the Giants. And uh, I'm not sure if he knew at the time. He may have influenced the decision. I, I don't know. I've always got on exceptionally well with Sheeds. Um, some people think Sheeds is a nutter, but I think he made his match with me. We're nutcases together. And, uh, um, no, I, I respect him. I think he's one of the best coaches of any sport that I've worked with. His ability to get the most out of uh, the people that he works with and allows people that work for him to grow. And I think you've only got to look at his extended influence in the AFL of uh, uh, the coaches that have come through uh, Kevin Sheedy. And like you are talking earlier about Andrew Russell, well, I'm very proud of Andrew Russell, what he's done. And in, in a way, I've influenced Andrew Russell's development. And there's been a number of other fitness coaches that I've been able to influence. And I take that as a personal um, acknowledgement for me um, of that you're doing something right. And when you apply that to Kevin Sheedy, I tell you what, it's a very, very long list of coaches and, and players that he's influenced in the game. I, yeah, I, I can't uh, rate Sheets highly enough. No, awesome. I get it. You know what? It's, I know it's a big call coming from a Carlton supporter, but I do get good vibes looking at him. And you can't not like him after you see his early days of the jacket swinging, just the passion that comes out of him. You can tell he uh, he cares about what he does. So so that's really good. But Quinny, I wanted to just jump back to something you are or you mentioned earlier. You were saying about when you brought in the uh, reformer Pilates to the Bombers, it was a, a bit of an eye opener for for Sheeds just as a as a start point. But um, I, I think I've told you before, but I, I'm not sure. Just in case, I I write some uh, some pre season and in season training programs specifically on running for a, a lot of local clubs here, more at a community level. Um, probably the youngest uh, that I work with is like an under-16s team. Mm. And uh, one of the one of the coaches has um, has shot me a message specifically. Well, he, he asked me and I thought it'd be something that I wanted to chat to you about because I, I think it'd be something you'd have a, a little bit more science behind your answer and I wanted to give him the best one we could. But mm. uh, just with, with all the um, changes that have, or with all the, I guess, uh, with, with the various forms of training that you can build into an AFL program now, there's there's no shortage of of new ideas. And and here's what he asked. Um, he said uh, he he said what what thoughts do you have on low heart rate running, um, and how could we integrate this with a preseason running plan? So he mentioned the uh, the Maffetone method. I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yes, yeah, look, I don't really buy into it, but. I think we're finding new things about the body all the time, but we know quite a lot about the heart. And uh, when we're talking about uh, a game like football or running, it's high-intensity work. And as a consequence of that, your heart rate goes to its maximal variable. It's about being able to perform at the highest level. Now, when we're talking about uh, conditioning, we want your heart rate to come down into what we call its resting heart rate you want that to be as low as possible. And you get that through uh, continued conditioning aerobically to uh, condition the heart to function better 
but you've also got to condition it so that it can go to its highest level and work within those. I think when you start talking about things like breathing and, and the like, I think it's, you know, it might be okay if you're in a passive activity, but uh, intense running and uh, sports like AFL or soccer, even tennis, I think you're not going to be able to achieve at your optimal if you think you can influence your heart rate by uh, by things like breathing. It's it's a, it's work rate, and you you get adaptation going place from uh, actually doing the doing the hard yard, so to speak. And uh, you know a lot of listeners may be um, familiar with uh, something that's now a pretty common phenomenon called kids high intensity intermittent training, and that's that's pretty much training your heart to uh, adapt to high energy training, uh, whatever form that comes in, uh, for short bursts of time, short recovery, max intensity, short recovery, and so on. And uh, that's really the tried and true method and the best that we know at this stage. But again, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't be afraid of trying something new, but I wouldn't go in to an environment like an AFL club these days and say, okay, I've got, I've got a hunch. I think I'll try it because, uh, my hunch would be it wouldn't work. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So, okay, so a, a major focus, obviously, on that hit uh, style training. Um, so, uh, when it comes to when it comes to actually planning a preseason, like I know this is quite a broad question, Quinny, and we're focused, um, which is fine. I, I'm going to relate this back to to running as well for any distance runners out there are going oh, far out. I didn't realise I was listening to an AFL podcast, but. Um, uh, uh, one of the one of the things that I can imagine is a, a challenge for you, and I've certainly experienced myself when you're trying to prepare a preseason training program, is um, cater for cater for not only the different fitness levels and the but the different player roles and positions. Um, yeah. So when it comes to planning something like that, are there any general rules that you have when it does come to uh, scheduling the aerobic work? into the week in and around sort of their, their strength and conditioning and their, their higher intensity workouts? Uh, you, are you talking about for an athlete now or are you talking about in the sport like AFL? Yeah, I'm, I'm referring more specifically to AFL right now. Okay. No, no, well, I, I tend to, uh, you look at the age of the athlete and what's their training background and you train them according to that. One of the things that I've used very effectively over the years is a thing called RPE it's rate of perceived exertion and it's a simple scale when I first heard about it I thought there is no way that this is going to be what we're looking for but what it actually did allow us to do was uh, when we did this we did so many studies on it where it links directly to your heart rate and the higher your um, rate of perceived exertion the higher the corresponding rate of the heart is going to be and that way you can individualize the training for your individual. So it's not it's not really going to happen too many times where on one session the athlete's going to break down because it was too intense. It's a cumulative load that's the problem. So if you're monitoring your training loads through a, a system like rate of perceived exertion, to my mind, that's almost as good as constantly monitoring heart rate and doing your graphs and charts at the end of every session. But when you're in a situation with a team, that's almost impossible to do just in the man hours. So asking the players post-session, how do you rate that session, then you're going to get a very good indication of how they're adapting and recovering, and you adjust your training accordingly. I, I put a training session, again, whether it's for an AFL player or an elite athlete of any sport, I still apply the same principle 
I'll do a training program. So I'm working with some pretty talented athletes at the moment. And at the beginning of the year, I mapped out what that was going to be. So that's a bit like we're going to have a, a, a holiday. We're going to go to Australia for a holiday. So I know how we're going to get to where we want to start. But so we're going to start in Sydney. And then as each month goes, I refine that. So the first refinement might be that I want to have a, a trip from Sydney to Melbourne. I'm going to drive. And then the third part of that, so we're now looking at a week, I'm, I'm going to drive from Sydney to Albury. And then we refine it even further into a day and I'm going to drive from Sydney to Canberra. Now, it doesn't say on that road trip that I can't have a stopover on my way to Canberra at Midicom and have a cup of coffee. And there might be a winery that I want to drop into or there might be a little stopover for a, a B&B. That's like a training program. You might set the destination of where you want to go, but you have to be constantly monitoring and alert for opportunities and suggestion there might be a roadblock on the way where you've got to adjust your plan so i'm constantly adjusting up to the very day of and during a session constantly tweaking and adjusting for every single individual and that's the difference if you've become a slave and you just take that road trip from sydney to canberra i tell you what it's a boring bloody trip and at the end of the day you know there's not much to see after you've done it a few times so you've got to be altering and adjusting and tweaking constantly and asking your athlete for feedback how do you find it what's this and how are you responding measuring assessing and use your coach's eye what do they look like how are they moving i, I use my ears for coaching as much as my eyes what do they sound like when they're on the track are they landing heavily are they uh, is one football harder than the other you know you know you can pick up all manner of things from uh, body rotations to uh, you know lower leg, leg injuries just from listening to to a athlete run so yeah, look, sorry, it's probably a weird answer, but it's uh, it's, it's, it's the way I look at uh, my programs. You know, we, it's about simplify, simplify. For me, um, getting uh, an athlete ready to go to the Olympics is just like the ultimate road trip, and we've got stopovers all the way. Yeah, really good. Okay, so with that uh, feedback, is that just a, a little bit of a self-monitored feedback that they add into their journal, or are you trying to get them as often as they can to just keep you updated with uh, how they're how they're sort of adapting and perceiving the effort that they're putting in through training? No, you can't do it the other way. You can. Uh, I when I now that I'm just with track, it's very easy because I've got a um, a small number, so I can be asking them, "Well, how would you rate that?" And I, I do the ratings for them. And it also is that interaction that I I love that personal interaction with my athletes. But when you've got a big number, and unless you've got the largesse of a you know a professional club where you can have staff employed by staff to do the job, um, you know, and go and ask each athlete or each footballer, um, yeah, yeah, there's apps that you can buy. Just go and look up uh, rated perceived exertion and uh, and go for it. And if, people are listening to this and they like the idea of it i could just send them the the simple sheets and how we've done it and how we used to do the graphs and charts so for me um with coaching uh, i don't believe there's any real secrets in coaching and anyone who's saying there are well to me it's not the secrets it's your insecurity that you're talking about so if anyone's listening to this and i think oh, i wouldn't mind knowing a bit more about it well ring me up i'll give you the sheets i'll show you how we do it it's it's a uh, it, it can't be hard if i'm doing it it's certainly not rocket surgery just it, you know you just You've just got to be consistent with it. Yeah, no, really good, really good. I love it, Quinny, because uh, from the few people that I've spoken to who have who have seen you uh, in a clinical sense, and from those who have been around you, I'm not sure. I know you see a lot of people, but my cousin Christy Davidson, 
uh, had a Zoom call with you, and she was she couldn't stop raving about the the conversation. And what she liked most was the the little color coded. Uh, I think it was the way that you had structured her training program, um, and yeah. different colors were symbolic of different things. Are you able just to walk us? Through that yeah. a little bit, because I think one thing that frustrates me about, uh, I think the sports doctor scene, Quinny, which you've well and truly avoided, is uh, half the time I have no idea what a, a coach or a doctor is saying to me. So when someone can boil it down to my level and uh, my language, it, it it helps me take it away and actually be able to apply it with a bit more confidence. And um, yeah, just through that color coding uh, yeah, program sure. that you'd given to Christy, I thought, okay, it sounds uh, like you've it, nailed that. Yeah, I use it. I use it. I use it with all of my athletes and I use it with all of my patients in the clinical setting. So um, for those who don't know, I'm an exercise physiologist. So I work in a medical clinic down in Melbourne. I'm at South Yarra Spine and Sport. That's like a little plug, by the way. So I'm at South Yarra Spine and Sport. And when I structure up a program for uh, a patient or an athlete that comes in, I just use a simple colour code. And look, I, I, it all comes down to I, I'm very visual. with I, I look at things and I like to, if I look at a chart, just having numbers and figures on it that's not good enough for me i i need to see how it is so i just come up with my own code and um one of the big areas where you get injuries particularly for running is with overload constant impacting and so if i look at a week just monday through to sunday and i look at that week i color code if they go for a run on a monday i color it green simple green is on so it's an impacting color so any, any running session, I colour-coded green. If uh, they are doing strength work, I had to come up with a colour for strength. And for me, it's the royal colour. It sort of binds things together and it's the ruler of your overall performance, I think. So I went for regal purple. So purple is my colour of strength. And then if I want to get an athlete off their legs and do non-weight-bearing type of work, so um, swimming or water running, for example... It's non-weight bearing, it's the colour of water, so it's blue. And if I want them to do aerobic work, so I want them to do some cross-training, say on an elliptical or a bike, whatever, it's aerobic, so it's going to impact on blood, so they're going to be red sessions. If I want them to have active recovery, so that might be foam roller, stretching, active puncture, dry needling, whatever it might be. When I was playing football, I talked to you about it when I played rugby league. At halftime, they used to give us oranges to help us recover. I don't know if it ever really worked, but we had oranges at halftime, and I used to look forward to those. Um, so active recovery for me is orange in colour. So, um, And then my last one, my last significant colour is um, um, orange. Sorry, I told you orange. My last significant colour in my code is actually yellow, and that's my rest day. And it's yellow because that's your day in the sun where you do nothing. So I just mix those colours up. And what I'm really looking for when I put a program together, have I got too many similar sessions back to back? Because that's when you overtrain your athlete. That's when the athlete gets themselves into all manner of trouble. So it's just my own convoluted system of putting a program together. And uh, yeah, a lot of my patients and my athletes, they're well uh, tuned into it. But it's also a, a way of empowering them to understand the program so that they know that okay. Well, if I miss that session, I can replace it with this. But I can't do a, I can't do two green boxes back to back, for example, if they're coming off a, a history of stress fractures. I, that's one of the rules that I'll give them. And uh, yeah, so you're just talking to them on a, um, it's it's a science based program, but it's as simplistic as you can get. Uh, anyone can do that. 
Yeah, I knew there was a reason. I thought I was super intelligent for a moment when Christy showed me the chart. I thought, hang on, that makes perfect sense. And she goes, no, no, it's designed for people like you, mate. That's why. I go, ah, interesting. I thought I, uh, I thought I, I thought I just tapped into some science gene that I never realised I had, but it just turns out you're good at boiling down those complicated things, Quinny. But, um, mate, I know this is. Uh, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to be as relevant to as many runners as I can, but I understand that. It's not a one size fits all for, for a lot of runners, but for, for those that you work with, is there um, like, like with your elite athletes, do you have any sort of uh, structure around making sure that they're not running two days in a row or is it purely dependent on the individual athlete? Uh, no, it depends on the athlete. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, marathon runners, you know, they're listening to this and going, well, you're kidding yourself. You've got to run back to back, but, you, it depends on the athlete and you build up to that sort of level and you also make sure that your recovery is there. Like people see recovery in many instances, they see recovery as, oh, you do that at the end. For me, you're not warming down at the end of a session. You're actually doing the preparation for the session the next day or that evening. And you can do two sessions a day, three sessions a day if you want. But uh, look, you, you've got to look after yourself and the best way is to just monitor that overall load and somewhere in there, whether you're training back-to-back, at somewhere, some point, you must put in there a non-impacting day. And if you don't do that, be the genius and keep doing it because eventually nature's going to give you the lesson that you need. And uh, then you bemoan, how come I'm always injured? Why is this happening to me? It must be bad luck. It's not bad luck. It's poor management. Injuries are poor management. What I found interesting as well, having a foot in both uh, the AFL and the distance running scene is there's definitely a correlation between uh, people being really, really good at smashing themselves. And uh, maybe it's just the newer athletes, but I noticed when, when I'd be down at a football club, it was so often at a community level that the, if someone was on their hands and knees at the end of every session, it'd be celebrated, it'd be pats on the backs, like, good work, boys, we're putting in the hard work, things are going to pay off. And I went down from a, a distance running perspective, um, and, and not to say that, that uh, distance runners are exempt from that mindset, but I, I was sort of shocked, and I think it was a little bit subconscious, uh, the things that you're talking about now, because I... I, I just took a mental note thinking, yeah, I'd be really interested to see how long you can keep up this sort of level of effort for before you break down. Yeah, well, that's true. But I, I do think, though, there is something in that. It's uh, You've got to find your limitations. And, you know, if you're really an elite athlete or even if you're just in a, an elite mindset, you mightn't be an elite athlete, but your, your mindset is getting the most out of yourself. You've got to find your limitations. And sometimes that means pushing yourself to the extreme. And whilst... You know, I think you have to do that to discover uh, how good you can be, but you can't do it every session. And if you if you keep doing that, then your body's going to rebel on you because it's, it can't recover from that high intensity. But I think if you if you aspire to get the best out of yourself, whether that be a PB at the you know the the 10k fun run that you're going in in three months' time, or you're aspiring to go to Tokyo for the Olympics, you've got to find your limitations somewhere, and that means high intensity sessions that aren't always pleasant but uh, they leave you with that uh, you know flood of endorphins that are quite often euphoric yeah yeah no really really good point uh Quinny you've I know I've picked your brain a little bit about this in the past but I you mentioned it again and it's something that I'm, I'm personally really fascinated by and that's the that's the subject of, of recovery and you mentioned a couple of things there I haven't actually asked you about um, just with with dry needling uh, is there sort of a is there a little bit of a core um, a, a little bit of a core group of, of recovery strategies that you you think are the best or the most effective and mm. um, anything from hydration to massage and, and beyond? Uh, 
I think it, it comes down to the individual, but there's some big blocks in there. And you just mentioned hydration. Uh, the cell cannot recover unless it's hydrated. And so the most important thing post a, a session is to hydrate the body. And, uh, you know, a simple water will do the job. If you're getting ready for a competition or within a competition, I think you should have something that's more like a, an electrolyte base, so a Powerade, Gatorade type uh, uh, solution that you're drinking because it's got a, a, the correct mixture of salts and electrolytes that you need. But post-activity, uh, post I think you just need to get uh, the cell hydrated. And once the cell's hydrated, then you're on your way to recovery. So for me, that's as important as anything. The mobility around the joint, I don't think, you know, we talk about stretching and things like that, but it, it's just aligning fibres that you're after. Um, and then I think it does come down to a bit of horses for courses, like what people like. Um, for me personally, I couldn't stand someone massaging me. But uh, some of the athletes that I coach, they they uh, you know live by getting their their regular massage of their legs and back and so on. Um, and but I, I quite like dry needling, and for some people that's like a real fear that they have of uh, of having a needle go in. But um, I don't know. I, I just think it's horses for courses, but. Again, I put together a, a chart. I just call it Pickerbox, and uh, I've got all the different recovery methods that um, I rate and have used. And uh, I get my athletes to uh, achieve so many points in a given week, and uh, they have to pick a box that's got a recovery activity in it and uh, and achieve their points. So they tick off on their points. So it gives them a variety, but also. Uh, beyond that, they start learning different methods of recovery and it also teaches them that, oh, this one works for me or that one actually I hate doing that. So, again, if anyone's listening and they want pick a box recovery, drop me a line, I can send it to you, it's no problem. But, uh, yeah, I, I find that that's a, a pretty important one. The other thing that I've been doing a lot lately, which um, and really for, for the runners uh, I think this is, that the shoes that we wear now are so engineered that in many respects it takes away the foot feel. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not anti-podiatry um, or anything like that, but, you know, even having um, orthotics and, and other manufactured uh, things in our shoes, uh, heel raises and so on, it does take away the natural feel of the foot. At the end of a session, I will get my athletes and if anyone's ever watching one of my training sessions and you see my athletes take their shoes and socks off at the end, they'll be running around on the infield in bare feet uh, just to exercise and stretch out the fascia underneath the feet, um, get their feet moving as they meant to. Uh, we'll then get into the long jump pit and I'll have them do a series of technique drills, just, you know, classic A drill, B drill, skips in the long jump pit, uh, again, to stretch out and strengthen the feet. And there's a number of commercial products that you can buy, but you could use even something as simple as a golf ball and you're just massaging the, um, uh, the midsole of the foot, stretching it out with that golf ball just to get the movement and the feel back in and get the foot working. Uh, when you think about uh, you're a runner and people think their tool of trade are their shoes and, you know, the, um, the type of moisture-wicking fabric that they've bought, well, I disagree your tool of trade is your feet, and you've got to look after that above all else. You know, you can have everything in tip-top shape, but if you've got dodgy feet, you're in all sorts of trouble. So I'm very big on um, getting the movement in the feet, and it's actually, uh, we can give it a term if you like to make it a little bit, to make it sound a bit more intelligent. It's just proprioception. 
proprioception is knowing where you are in time and space. And uh, for the foot to have that sort of uh, sensory awareness, if I can get that improved on every foot strike, it might only be worth 0.0001 of a second. I'll tell you what, if you take you know, a few steps in a marathon, those 0.001s, they add up to quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I'm just thinking about the uh, the the barefoot running shoes. I wanted to hear your thoughts on yeah. on those. Is that a like a permanent alternative? Do you think, or is that something that like the barefoot running is just something that you should do intermittently with your training? Uh, uh, for me, I think it should be intermittently, but I don't have anything really to back me up other than you know my gut feel and opinion. So that's just the coach's comment. I think if you've got some biomechanical anomaly and. If I'm really frank, I don't think there's many people I've ever met. In fact, I can't think of anyone I've ever met that doesn't have some sort of abnormality with their gait. And it could even be not your gait. It could be the running surface that you're running on. If you were just running around in bare feet all the time, um, I suppose you get stronger to a point. But uh, whether you could do it at a high intensities for long periods of time, you know, it'll be a great discussion, a great study to have going forward. But um, if I was working with a high-level runner, I wouldn't be rushing out to have them running barefoot running shoes as a as a day-to-day activity. No, I, I just I just see it as a as an adjunct to our training to make sure that their feet are, are strong. And it's you know people focus on say stretching their hamstrings or their quads after after run. I'm just making the point that I think you should be stretching the uh, soles of your feet and strengthening your feet to actually function as best as they can because that's your point of impact. Mm, yeah, no, that makes sense. I um, yeah, you mentioned yeah, yeah, some of the athletes that you can see. I follow you on Instagram, obviously, and I get a little bit of, a little bit of a kick out of uh, some of the drills that you do. I get a little bit of frustrated seeing some of the big African blokes with their shirts off because it makes me realise my gym program's not working. Um, <laughs> there's some yeah, good well, abs going around there, quite, Quinny. Well, quite, quite often they don't take their shirts off. I say, them, God, if I had a body like you guys, I'd be walking around in my undies all the time. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but they, no, they're in uh, ripping, Nick. Uh, the boys, I've got a, a fantastic squad. Of, you know, I just love them all. And, you know, they work extremely hard and uh you know you you don't get that body uh because you've come from africa uh they are disciplined you know if i said to uh we've got well one of them ironically like he's ripped you know he doesn't have a six pack it's a 12 pack so um i gave him the nickname of chubby and uh so so chubby you know if i suggested to him that he should have a, a glass of or a can of coke uh it's like you're offering him a glass of kerosene you know, he wouldn't even consider having a, um, any any sugary drink uh, to the thought of having a chocolate. It just, they can't understand it. And and the, the whole thing is this is something for children. You know, you do this as a special, and their daily diet, even here, and they've got money and the like now, but they're, it's a very simplistic diet of literally every day rice and um, the chicken or rice and tuna. And it's, uh, it's they... And, and water and they just it, it's yeah they have not that much in terms of carbohydrate and uh, they just eat clean all of the time and you know you can I, I took them out for dinner once and I thought it was a real treat and they almost endured it they had to endure a night of eating what we uh, would call a really top meal out uh, yeah it was an endurance test for them and uh, yeah they're not asking when we're going again <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, so no, so, so and, and in the gym, oh, they do work very hard. But I've long thought that uh, um, African athletes are predisposed to uh, 
uh, movement just from their skeletal structure. And, you know, we didn't do too much of that sort of study. And ethically, you know, you stop from doing a lot of those studies, um, you know, on racial grounds. So I think what you'd probably find, and, and the results are showing, you know, who was the last white um, dominant sprinter in, in the 100? You know, I, I don't think you've got to be a, an elite coach to go, well, there's some advantage going on for uh, those of African origin. Um, and I don't think that that's a, a – I don't see it as a racial thing. I, I honestly don't see the colour of their skin. I just see the people um, that they are and what they're aspiring to be. I, I coach people, not coloured skin. Um, but with, uh, with the, the guys I've got, uh, you know, I just see them uh, working very hard. And, and just so I started talking about predisposition, one of the really interesting studies I did when I was with Essendon, and I supervised two PhD students on it when we – got up here with the giants we took it a whole step further and it was around visual search and we had these glasses worth about thirty thousand dollars and it would measure the movement of your eye and put in a really basic form if the eyes move fast and they're sort of moving quickly darting around from thing to thing uh it indicates that you're not very good at decision making but if they move just once and say lock in on an object then you are good at decision-making. So what that meant, especially when I first came up here to Sydney and we were trying to identify talent in a, a market that didn't have any interest in AFL, we were going into schools with, like, um, tablets and getting kids to watch um, footage on this tablet. And we could identify from that as readily as we could identify if a kid was more likely to be quicker or had better endurance or better jump or whatever it might be. We could also identify even if they've never seen a game of AFL, if they've got potential to make good decisions under pressure just from their eye movements. And what do you know from that? We found that Indigenous Australians have got not only better visual search patterns, but they've got better peripheral vision than Caucasians. Now, have a think about the Indigenous athletes, whether they're playing AFL, basketball, soccer, tennis. They seem to have greater visual acuity. Oh, well, I can tell you they do. And uh, I think it's um, you can work with the people that you've got around their their, their strengths, and um, and so we do. Anyway, I've probably digressed again now. I'm off talking about what you're looking at rather than what you're running like. But, uh, no, no, yeah, it's interesting. I actually, oh, it is it is fascinating, Quinny. And I think I I think I'd actually I don't know if I'd read one of your blogs or I'd actually spoken to you about this or what, but I, I've heard you speak about that in some form before and it blew my mind because i actually went home and watched some Sura rioli highlights and i thought man there's there's not many people that are doing that so there's definitely something going on and you can you can definitely see the uh, you can see the extra time almost in in some of the players and like obviously it, i can only imagine it's a it's a spectrum um but there's there's players that i think come from a, a basketball background who i don't know if it's just because it's a faster pace game but like someone even like a scott pendlebury seems to have a little more time than just your average AFL player when they're in the, in the middle of a pack. And it's just, it's nice to watch those athletes just uh, look as though they've got an extra two seconds on the clock in comparison to the other players around them. Yeah, I oh know, absolutely. And, you know, we're moving towards a point, well, how trainable is that? Um, and, I, and I guess it's just as, I'm, I'm guessing that it is trainable to a point, but you can't coach, you know, you've either got talent or you haven't. You can improve what a person's got, but you can't, you know, as much as a lot of coaches think they've got, they can't create talent. They can only develop the talent they've got. So if you can identify someone that's got, say, better visual search or better endurance or better speed, you work with the, the uh, skills and talent that they've got. One of my great 
frustrations with sport in Australia is that we've got so much talent that we we walk past every day on the street and we even uh, in in many respects turn our nose up at us. You know, we're looking for talent, for example, and we're just or I'm talking to you about Indigenous Australians. I think they're predisposed to sports like invasion sports such as uh, AFL or rugby league, um, basketball and the like. There's more Indigenous Australians living in Western Sydney than the whole of the Northern Territory and South Australia combined. Well, where are they? Where are they all in sport? We should be bringing them in and giving them, you know, uh, opportunities to excel and be the best that they can be. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they can make the choice, but you've got to give people the opportunity to do that. And, you know, and I know it's the same in Melbourne, but um, there's a perceived problem and a real problem that we've got with some cultural groups. And, you know, I may be wrong, you might have to edit it out, but I, I feel for, like, the Sudanese community who are, you know, identified as being um, troublemakers, they get around in gangs, they threaten people, they carry knives. Well, that would quite give them an opportunity to assimilate and be part of the country. And when you look at these people, you tell me that you haven't got Ruckman there, that we haven't got a, a, an elite high jumper amongst them and, and so on. I just, yeah, we've got to do more in this country to give opportunity to the people that are coming from overseas. And, you know, before people turn their nose up at it, other than the Indigenous listeners to this, we're all refugees in this country and we've got to do more to provide best opportunity and best chance. And the thing about it is, it's not just them that's going to benefit from that. The whole country is going to benefit from that. It's a no-brainer for me. And things like, you know, testing and visual search and the like, you know, all these sports getting around and, and athletics frustrates me sometimes. I love the sport, but it's probably like, you know, a partner you've been with for too long, that frustrates you after a while. I just sort of think that, you know, they... They've got a welfare mentality of, uh, oh, when are we getting our next handout? When is the, you know, when are the next round of grants going to come? Or how come they get that? Well, we've got to make our own opportunity here. And the opportunities are right in front of us and just got to um, get our act together and go and do it and make it happen. You know. That's great, Quinny. I'd love to. I'd love to keep chatting with you, but I've got my eye on the clock, and I know you said uh, that you got things to do at four. You got your next client, so I'm not going to hold you up, Quinny. But well, I've just, I've just turned, I've just turned up at the, uh, the ground, and some of the listeners may recall one of the great athletes in Australian sport, a guy called Darren Clark. And uh, Darren Clark, for those who don't know, is the Australian record holder for the uh, 400. And uh, he won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games uh, in Auckland. He ran a 44.60 there, but he was also fourth, fourth in two Olympic Games, uh, and the first three places. Subsequently, went positive for drugs in future years, but he is one of the best athletes we've ever had in this country. And uh, he trained at a ground in Sydney in Lane Cove called um, Rotary Athletics Field, and so that's I'm looking at it right now. But I remember being down here, and you know, I was trying to uh, be this wonderful, massive talent, you know, on the track, and I'm running alongside Darren Clark and feeling fantastic. My arm lift was great, and technically, just you know, bounding over the ground like a bloody gazelle. And uh, Clarkie said to me, oh, let's lift a bit. And I saw his <laughs> leg beside me, just lifted that little bit, and he just moved away. I already had lifted. I had lifted before, you know, <laughs> and he just moved away. I knew, seriously, 
wouldn't have known in that instant that I was destined to be a coach because there's no way I could ever be Darren Clark. And, and it comes down to it. You've either got it or you haven't. <laughs> and I knew in that moment, you know, I could dream all I like, but sometimes I had to wake up and say, yeah, you're a coach. And uh, <laughs> here I am, I'm down in a coach. Oh, no, hey, I think there's a lot of athletes around the world that you saw that high knee lift, Quinny, because uh, it's turned out to be a good choice. But, hey, Quinny, thanks uh, thanks again, as always. Really, really love having you on the show. And I'll make sure I link uh, to your website so anyone who wants to reach out, has any questions or, or wants to see you as a client can uh, can do so through your website, Quinny. My pleasure. Thanks, Austin. Great to talk to you, mate. Yeah, uh, you too. Run well, stay fit. And uh, make sure you take those rest days in between. Yeah, right back at you. Thanks, Queenie. (laughs) Good on you, mate. Bye now.